Yeah, and I it, and I think uh, theopoetics is actually a rather excellent framework for thinking about Jesus because it gives the uh, person of faith like, permission to do with the story of Jesus what I think the gospel writers were doing. And it, it puts you in a framework where you're thinking about faith and, and trying to find language and such where you, where you aren't like trying to nail jello to a wall. And I right. think when we feel like our faith or our understanding of God and Christ is something that needs to be so specific, nailed down, and then defended, you end up, um, you, you could come up with some really amazing and beautiful things, but how they function is problematic. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Dr. Trip Fuller. Tripp is an author, podcaster, and host of Homebrewed Christianity, professor, homebrewer of Tasty Beer, as well as a theologian and a dear friend of mine. In this episode, Tripp and I discuss Christology from a number of different angles. We dive into a poetics of JC by chatting about the cosmic Christ, historical critical biblical scholarship surrounding the person of Jesus, the early church's Christological confessions, and things get a little nerdy and zesty surrounding the implications of confessing Christ for today. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Trip is here today to uh, not only hang out and do a live event with us this evening uh, for the Way Collective, but also uh, is just uh, an old friend, and um, we have worked together and uh, spent many an evening theologizing over craft brews. And uh, so today we wanted to talk a little bit of Christology. Trip is just finishing up his dissertation in the field of Christology. And uh, praise the Lord. Pray PTL. And I have had the privilege of getting to see a preview copy of that uh, and also work through some of the fine tuning. Uh, but yeah, so so you know, I'm interested, Tim. You, you was picking a podcast, going after theopoetics, and now you want to you, you want to talk about Jesus. W- what do you think? When was the moment Christology was something you'd ever touch with a with a poem? Well, I think that in my own journey, my Christology developed to a point where. I was asking new questions, um, specifically after my own journey with cancer, which was Mm -hmm. a catalytic moment for me in in grappling with my own suffering and and that the whole entire uh, project of doing theology really needed to to come to a place where I could ask certain questions. However, uh, what we say of Jesus in particular um, took on a new new form Mm -hmm. um, out of that that situation. Yeah, and I it, and I think uh, theopoetics is actually a rather excellent framework for thinking about Jesus, because it gives the uh, person of faith like, permission to do with the story of Jesus what I think the gospel writers were doing, and it, it puts you in a framework where you're thinking about faith and and trying to find language and such, where where you aren't like trying to nail Jello to a wall. And I think when we feel like our faith or our understanding of God and Christ is something that needs to be so specific, nailed down, and then defended, you end up, um, you you could come up with some really amazing and beautiful things, 
how they function is problematic. Right. Because uh, at least in my experience, like if I think back through all the different versions of Jesus I've had in my head in my life growing up as a Baptist church planters kid in the South to today, there are lots of them I can look back and go like that. You That's beautiful. It's just not where I am. And I think there's a point where we get to in our faith journey where we then realize, yeah, like I am in a very different place, like Calvinist trip that read Spurgeon sermons for devotional had a very specific understanding of Jesus. And at that time it was animating for my faith. It was beautiful, but I also have one now, but I wouldn't like look back and be like, Oh, look at that Calvinist POS. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't right. have real faith in, cause I know in my own journey that, that, that was one expression. Then I have one now, but there's a continuity of the relational reality mm-hmm. of God mediated by Jesus that, goes through and poetics I think lets us off the hook of being responsible for a final clear decisive conclusion and frees us to really do what theology should be it should be doxological Mm -hmm. it should be like coming from our subjective experience it should be creatively engaging the tradition and text and narratives and um, and and no no one gets mad when a poet's creative and how do you succeed when you're in poetics it's it's an evocative type of engagement, not uh, like teaching math. Yeah, right. Like you don't no, you don't totally. get done teaching geometry, and the person's like, yeah, but like a squared plus is b squared equals z, and you're like, what's that? That's not even American. How are you supposed to like? How could you talk about Jesus with a British z? So. Right. Uh, <laughs> so to that end, then when we're talking about a poetics of the Christ. Uh, one of the things that most Christians look back to when they think about Christology is the earliest creeds and confessions. However, those developed a few hundred years or so after the Christ event. And so one of the things to highlight what you're drawing out about the theopoetic task is that it's a task that is done in community. There were confessions, there were Christologies. And so as somebody who's done a lot of Mm -hmm. work in early ancient uh, Near Eastern... um, Christological development, how would you describe the early expressions of Christology that developed in the New Testament, as well as how you saw that tradition evolve over time? Well, one of the things I would say is that if we were just doing kind of a a layered uh, history moment, the church existed with an identity as Christians before there were any texts based on practices. So if you were trying to think in the early church, where did they confess their faith? Where did it center? It was in communion. It was in baptism. Uh, it was in those practices where they came to have a shared identity as the body of Christ. And the desire for um, not just like Paul's letters, which are the oldest things in, in, in the New Testament. And in it, you see some of the hymns. So like Philippians 2 hymn, the Colossians hymns. You, these are like uh, the, the worship ditties of the early church. And uh, and so I think we can see in those what it sounded like. And over time, the more text developed, the need and desire for the story of Jesus and narrative and things happen. And so um, what what problem I think we've got to as Christians is uh, we receive the history of the early church and assume that pro, that fidelity uh, today is 
faithful repetition of conclusions that were established in the fourth century. Right, like people would be shocked to find out when you read the New Testament, it's really hard to find a Trinitarian that wrote a gospel. But we think, oh, clearly Mark thought is a Trinitarian, and you're like, my bad, he's not. Paul isn't. Matthew and Luke aren't. And but like that's missing the point, right? So, uh, so here's a story that might help. Like I when when I realized that the Bible was not what it, I thought it was, I was in fifth grade and it was Lent. What did you think it was? Um, obviously the word of God, eternal truth and junk. Okay. But like, I just read it and it's like it, uh, the Bible is where we learn the right things and right and true equaled <laughs> what at least now I would say enlightenment definitions of truth. Right. Right. Like it, well, is it really real is code for it? Did it happen that way? Exactly. Historically. Yeah. Which is just a, well, no one listens to a theopoetics podcast thinks that come on. Um, that's a very reductive account of uh, of truth and such. But, you know, so so as a Baptist preacher's kid, um, and, and you have Lent and stuff, uh, which was a pagan practice. I mean, I mean Catholic. But but for Baptist preacher's kids, as those are very similar. Did you practice carnival, too? Um, no. No, no, no. You, you do, if you practice carnival, that makes uh, your, your true love waits retreat very, very... Uh, guilt-ridden. Awkward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, that's that's true, but you can't do that in an NPR podcast studio. Apparently not. <laughs> the uh, So I, I decided I was going to read through all the Gospels, like a good Bible-believing Christian should, and I think it was about fourth grade, and I remember getting near the end of reading all the passion narratives from the Gospels and calling my parents into the room at night. Um, and I'm like, my Bible's broken. They're like, why? And, you know, I, I, I know how you communicate truth about the Bible. You draw charts. So I had my paper out, and I like showed my parents, like, I don't know if you all know this, but in my Bible, uh, different people are with Jesus when he dies. Um, he dies on a different day in John than on the others. I don't know if you've checked these facts. Different people see him first, and he doesn't even tell them, that the, like, to tell the women, who are not always the same women, where they meet him, he didn't even say the same place. Oh, see me in Galilee, maybe. Like, my anyway. So I start like going through the list, and I'm like, and have you thought about this? Like in Mark, Jesus is just like, my God, why have you forsaken me? All Debbie Downer and junk. And then and by the time you get to John, there go looking to arrest Jesus, and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And he goes, I am. And those junks just fall down on the ground because John has this higher Christology. It begins with, I, you know, the word of God. So the whole time, it's just super high. He knows the plan. And John, he's not crying on the cross. He's like, oh, what do I need to do to make sure I fulfill the scripture? Do that. Put the little sponge up to my mouth. And he's like, it is finished. Mic drop. And, you know, like it. And it. Yeah, <laughs> like and why? Why hasn't someone made a, a really sweet "His Pain Your Gain" T-shirt out of that? I um, do not know. It is finished. Arms outstretched, uh-huh. mics in both hands. Mm-hmm. Two mic drops, double, double mic drop. One on Satan. Yeah, <laughs> and one on your sin. Boom. Um, Shaka laka. Yeah, trademark. Uh, so, so, I, and I remember that moment and going like, "What's wrong? They need an editor," and. Um, and my dad and mom were like, no, that's right. And I, and I remember going like, then why, why, why are we making such a big deal of this? 
This is basic contradictions. Mm-hmm. Not even the thought. Not it wasn't like I was like they have different understandings of Jesus, which now like if you study biblical studies, like there's a type of criticism called redaction criticism that looks at trying to understand the particular confessions and, and beliefs of each gospel writer. No, no, I just am like, it doesn't line up. So out of that, it really set off uh, my own faith uh, kind of experience was, well, then what do you do with it? And what are the texts really getting at? And what you come to find out, the more engaged you get in the biblical scholarship is in one sense, people see the critical study of scripture and they're like, oh, it's taking all the divinity out and stuff like that. But the other experience of it, at least for me, is you start to realize the power of the poetics that exist in the New Testament. And that one of the guess, the advantages we have today is through critical scholarship to give Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, all back their own voice. That they get to confess and let us wrestle and hear their text as best as we can understand them, um, letting them speak for themselves. Not like going to Matthew, the most Jewish of the Gospels, and telling him that he's secretly a Trinitarian. Right. Right, like Matthew, Jesus is like, they, they're like, oh, good teacher. He's like, why do you call me good? I am a Jew. I'm a monotheist. What, are you confused? You know, and and uh, so, so, so like to me, that the, then the Gospels are masterful acts of theological storytelling that are attempting to confess and witness to the lived reality of that community of faith um, in, in their community. And that's totally cool and doesn't freak anyone out because the centerpiece of the life of the church in the early church wasn't the books they were writing. It was communion. Yes. It was baptism. It was their life together. Um, it's only after the Enlightenment that the idea of being the body of Christ m- clearly meant something symbolic that's not real. Like, right. if, if you your identity is as part of the body of Christ, um, then I don't think you're sitting there going... Well, I'm going to outsource all the confidence in my faith to this text that I'm going to sit around and defend because you know what? You know why Jesus came? Oh, so that we could win a fight on a public battle forum with uh, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett in a, in a good debate, or well, we can stick it to uh, Steve Nye, the science guy. Uh, you mean Bill? Or whatever. <laughs> I, I like Steve Nye better, but. Well, that's his cousin. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. His, his, Bill Nye's cousin, Steve. Uh, he he has a more he has a stronger view of emergence. Oh really? Yeah. B- Bill and I's a bit hung up on certain uh, late seventies interpretations of chemistry to really like uh, not recognize also, selection at a social level. Also hung up on late seventies interpretations of bow ties. In uh-huh. case you noticed. Well, I, I think I think the man has rode that train until it's coming back around. Oh, it's coming back around. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So tell me then, what did that? Uh, movement from a sort of singular form of enlightenment truth to a more pluriform, multiplicitous understanding of even the early New Testament texts and their different uh, variations on the Christ confession. How did that transition in your own journey bring you to a new place where you were able to enter into the Christological task uh, in a new way, in a more poetic way, maybe? Well, I I think if, if all of a sudden the text you 
have read for a long time, kind of, you receive them naively as if they spoke in one voice. And, and I think when you're leaving that behind, you have to say like, no text is just divine, right? Like in some complete correspondence or whatever. Right. And then like, I got into all the historical Jesus stuff and, um, Jesus seminared it up like a champ. Uh, I mean, I never got my own set of beads or anything, but, um, uh, and then, but out of that, I think I got to the point where like no text is, uh, just a text. And in that, that moment came in college and I was a musical theater and philosophy major. And, uh, and I had kind of like post-structuralist my way into basically identifying every meta narrative as an oppressive meta narrative. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, this Which is, is itself an oppressive meta narrative. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so is a form of resistance to the, the, uh, Uber meta narrative that is the critique of meta narratives that every nineteen year old philosophy student uh, half enjoys and half self tortures themselves when they come to understand it, and you're like you're the guy like it ruins every party where you're you know you're like this is just a distractive uh, aesthetically engaged way of denying the inherent nihilism of the universe, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you're like clearly my life's better. That's why I'm trying to ruin it for you, everybody. <laughs> and um, so, like, like getting to that point and being like, oh, you know, yeah, this is all like BS. Um, to NPR booth, I did, I edited. Look at that. Oh yeah, I know, I know. The NPR booth, like, self edit right there. Um, so I, I got to that point of, oh, I don't really believe any of this. This is all stupid. And, uh, and and I'm also into science, which is not always normal for um, some uh, more postmoderny types of continentally influenced philosophy types. Uh, but I remember it, in a science class going like, no, even though this is all clear made up meta narratives, like there is social science that shows that being part of a, a community that with shared stories and, you know, like start explaining like the social science behind belonging and it leads to uh, narratives across generations. It works for better sense of identity for child development and passing on and enter uh, it, building community bonds so you can act towards justice and, and encouraging deeper empathy and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I need to arbit I just, I just need to find a meta narrative and, and, and just exist at an arm's length for a while. I decided I was going to be a Taoist, um, uh, I'm just like way too Western. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, think I, was, <laughs> I was like, that's a lot of work. So Lent came back around and I've read all the gospel uh, passion narratives during Lent for years. Hmm. Like, even though I didn't, God and I weren't on speaking terms, you could say. Uh, but still, like, if you're a Baptist preacher's kid, just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean you don't read the Bible and pray every day. I tried. That was just torturous. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't still love you, Trip. Oh, I know. Um, so, so I was, I, I was in that place, right? Like where if, if one side of dealing with the text is this naive assumption of it's just perfect, direct correspondence, communication, and it's all saying the same thing, you leave that behind. Then you can just tear stuff down and be like, it's all just what history or human or whatever. And, so I kind of uh, was reading through it, and I and I like my I don't know deeper conversion to faith or 
my recommitment to Christ or whatever came in that reading through Luke's gospel and on the cross in Luke's gospel, you know, he's got the two dudes beside him. And I always was just distracted growing up by how clearly Jesus had not read Paul because you don't go to heaven immediately. And he told the guy beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise. But as a Bible believing Christian, I know that today, sometimes in the Bible means an extended period of time and not a 24 hour period. So maybe when he said today, it was when his soul would awaken upon mm-hmm. the second return of Jesus. And like, I remember these discussions. I'm like, how can he say today when Paul in first Corinthians 15 says, blah, 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 blah. And you don't just go ahead and work it all out and you get distracted. But this time I just didn't care. I'm like, whatever. I mean, the God part, that's stupid. I'm just reading it because I have issues. Yeah. And it's a habit. Well, when he gets to Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I have that. It was one of those moments of of just opening. And uh, Hmm. I'm like, I know there is no real reality and truth and stuff. But it's a social scientific fact that selecting a a community to locate yourself is a good one, Mm -hmm. a good thing for your well-being and life expectancy and children raising. So I'm going to arbitrarily choose one where the innocent person suffering on the cost for on behalf of justice uh, says, Father, forgive them. Because if there was going to be a God, it should be one at least that beautiful. And that was that was like the beginning of uh, kind of reopening. Mm-hmm. And what made it stick was actually the second half. They know not what they do. Because to me, I was like, that is about the most honest statement of the human predicament. Hmm. Because you you know when you your your world gets opened up to the level of systemic oppression, injustice, violence, and all these things that you are just complicit with, unaware growing up in the world, it gets overwhelming. And you're like, something has to happen about it. What are we going to do about it? And if you can simultaneously see the most excluded one, say, Father, forgive them, but not not like let them off the hook, but point out how big the problem is, for they know not what they do. Hmm. And the ability to forgive and simultaneously give the other who's doing violence to you uh, a type of dignity recognizing, yeah, they're stuck in their situation and where they were thrown in the world and live and they're performing a, most of the script they were handed is just when they were handed and they're doing it. And you could be a centurion or you could be Judas who pieces out the, at the, you know, or you could be Peter uh, or you could be his mom or like if she's there, depending on the gospel. Um, right. So th- to me, the, that line was a, the re-engagement and I'm like, so I'm going to engage this tradition as if it could be true. Right. Now, I mean, I actually believe a lot more now <laughs> about things. and But the, the openness to, um, to changing your mind about all the other stuff, like if, if you were like, oh, what's most important to you for your faith? It is the, f- the form of life opened up by living as if this is the most beautiful expression of reality. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, there's, I have a lot of other things I think now, but like, if you're talking about the trend, that was kind of the point where you go, no, the text isn't just a text yeah, or just history. And the text isn't just divine. It's both of them. Yeah. And every moment of becoming, if you are a 
process friendly person is that right oh, like I'm more than friendly oh i know i'm just saying like for the listener like it's not just that these texts are simultaneously a very situated historical event no all situated historical events are a product of our history, our past, our present, our embodiment, our enactment, and the gift of openness, possibility, and life from God. And when you start to see the world in that kind of much more dynamic, relational way, then art becomes the pinnacle of divine self-expression, not a side job. Right. And one of the things I was going to highlight is that our our friend uh, Khaled Keith Perry, who literally wrote the book on Theopoetics— <laughs> You <laughs> wrote an introduction to it uh, called Way to Water, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is that theopoetics has a trifold emphasis. You could, as a Christian, call it a Trinitarian emphasis, except it's a trinity of aesthetics, uh-huh. experience, and embodiment. And it sounds like the testimony that you're giving in terms of your own experience with the the crucified uh, one talking about uh, forgiving and loving his enemies, them not knowing what they're doing and just performing a script that's playing out. It seems to me that what you're saying in a way, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it was a transformative experience that you had of being grasped by either the beauty of those words or what you could you might name as something like the divine love mm-hmm. that really transformed and brought you forth into that place uh, that might be called the second naivete. Yeah, yeah. Would that be? Yeah, yeah. In, in, in some way. And and I think the biggest gift the experience gave is permission for me to joyfully play with my tradition. Right. So if you ask me what the biggest difference existentially was after that moment, well, I had a much deeper level of consciousness about God's affirmation of me and the world and existence and um, and that is a freeing thing. I think that because you know like if if this is what truth looks like, it knows just how screwed up things are because we don't even know what we're doing and in the moment of God's self-revelation, uh, you know, Christians are like, what's God like? This dude. How's it in? Father, forgive them. That is, a con- that is a story where condemnation is not a primary activity. And yet, I think a lot of Christians hear the Christian story and they experience their faith as if it's somehow built around condemnation. And when, when your core being isn't primarily uh, built on your identity as God's beloved or whatever way every, every different part of the church or religious traditions probably have different ways of saying it. But if, if you don't know that the most true thing about you is that you're God's beloved, then even all the other parts of religion get put in a hermeneutic of condemnation. So if I'm like, Oh, Tim, great job at practice today. Well, yeah, like I could be saying it and being honest, and I could say it to you, but you know, like, oh, Trip is my coach and he loves me, and like he's just encouraging me. But if you think that you, at your core, there's a deficit to your being, then an affirmation is just a reminder that you could get judged the next time. You know, so oh, good job. Oh, I'm really glad I did a good job. Hopefully, I did good enough to fill up this gap of this experience, and it was in in like. Uh, like 
kind correction or like we could do better or encouragement and stuff all get experienced. If your way of existing religiously is primarily condemnation, doing well is just a signal that you could get judged if you don't do that. And you feel like you have to do these things. You have to perform because there's something about you that's inherently minimized, small, not lovable, not embraced, and that kind of thing. And that moment out of it was like, hey, if he says forgive them and they don't know what they're doing and they're freaking killing his kid, right? Like if that's what Papa's doing, then that is about the biggest affirmation of our being you get. Because I think there's a huge transition was being confident in that affirmation. And like, and I, I was saying it, like, still not sure. <laughs> it, I, w- I wasn't even saying it like, oh, I clearly believe in God. I'm just telling you the poetics of that tradition insist that you're at home in the world, and that's a very different thing. Right. And now I, I think I think everything I just said theologically now. But I'm saying then it was like the as-if structure of Christian experience is to wake up, and your proper attire is the attire given to a son or daughter of the divine. That's what you are putting on when you get up. Mm-hmm. And no, you're a parent. That's exactly what we want our kids to wake up and yeah. do. Right? Like, we want them when they see us to see someone who they know is on their team and is thrilled to have another day with them. Right. And I, that was the freeing part to me was that was what the experience did. And yeah. then you have freedom to play with how you understand the tradition, yourself, your vocation, community, and things. Because you don't have to do anything. You get to do it. And the get to do it is is evoked out of love. Right. And you know what love inspires? Art, poetry. Like, theopoetics is nerdy reflection. <laughs> yep. It comes out of love. Like, when you say, like, oh, Kara and I fell in love, and, and I'm like, tell me about it. And you start to tell a love story. You're not worried that when you get done, I'm going to be like, I think I want to marry her too. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, right. Or that, or that that adds perfectly up to equal yeah. this result. Yeah. And, and when you hear a love story told, like I could hand you a script and you could read it and you could be unmoved even though someone else wrote it and it was beautiful. Like the performance right. of the story, the telling of it, everything is part of communicating it. And I think yeah. a lot of people... Because of the fear, the condemnation, the, uh, some idea that God was really invested in us passing a true-false test about who Jesus is has led to people thinking, speaking theologically equals a math problem and not a love poem. And, yeah. and that's, just, that's just nuts, because I'm going to minister to lots of people, even ones that think what God really wants is to believe shit, uh, things— <laughs> Uh, if you ask them why they're there and why they're in their community and what matters, they'll tell you a love story yeah. um, about their life, being blessed by God, encountered by God, being in a crisis, and the people of God support them and they find God in the midst of it. Or like right. everyone tells love stories and for the church is like, I'm really glad you have a love story, but what I want to do is go over sex ed. And you're like, what? No, no, God, please don't do that. You're going to ruin it. Yeah. Like sex ed's important. Like you don't want to get hurt um, w- when you're making love, but please don't, don't like substitute sex education for like actually making love. The human race will die and so will the church. Right. If, if, uh, if, if you think proper education and organizing of your uh, sentences and language is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of being unmoved, I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity has had a PR problem in the 21st <laughs> century. And the PR problem is mainly Christians. <laughs> 
and how they act in public. And, and so when we talk about this idea of uh, a more romantic or, um, you know, even beautiful uh, aesthetic when it comes to not only giving narrative shape to our tradition, but inhabiting it ourselves and mm-hmm. seeing it more uh, as a dance or a poetics. One of the ways that I have seen emerging Christians, and I, I don't mean that to say emergent Christians, I mean that to say people who are evolving on their journey. One of the ways that I have heard a lot of people uh, finding a more robust way to confess the Christ today is by talking about the cosmic Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to know from you is, is the cosmic Christ something that Richard Rohr made up in the 1990s uh, and that most people are just finding out via various other podcasts like the <laughs> Robcast and um, Homebrewed Christianity? Or is are, are there some roots that we can trace within the early New Testament development of Christianity that help us see how this, this confession about Jesus of Nazareth swelled up and grew out of uh, a life-on-life knowing of this Jewish man mm-hmm. to a more cosmic, redemptive, poetic, if you will, uh, expansive version of, of a confession. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, maybe, uh, so one of the powers of the cosmic Christ today and why I think you see a resurgence in it is the narrative of telling the cosmic Christ connects a historic and thoroughly orthodox, uh, narration of salvation history. So that would be a telling of history that is primarily located in your specific religious history, it connects salvation history with cosmic history. And why there's a resurgence today, I would say, is because a lot of the initial challenges or threats to your faith if you grew up in a more conservative environment comes when you exist in a world where everyone kind of giggles when you talk about salvation history if it's as if that's the only history that matters right it could be um your science class that does it to you and you're like well and god made the earth in six days and they're like what that's interesting you know uh or it could be you're uh, like on my street there's six different world religions the nicest person is a libertarian atheist it's really disturbing to me. Um, not the atheist part, the libertarian part. But um, uh, that was a joke. All right. And then the Presbyterian who who is <laughs> it also works at the Buddhist temple. So um, so if you th- – that is a stack of historic salvation stories. And our world religions for a long time existed in cultures where everyone assumed it. And right. then you operated in it. It was unreflective in the sense of you weren't sitting there every day going – Oh well, is this is this my truth too? And blah blah blah. Like everyone assumed it, so all discussion operated under it. Hmm. Even beautiful, thoughtful re- reflection. So it's not a critique of the past. I'm just saying that a lot of us, uh, the West, lived in a world where everyone shared that big story, right? And now we don't. And so we also are in a world where the th- the kind of on the far end of one side is these kind of insistence that our salvation story is the only real story. On the other side are the fundamentalist enlightenment people who are like, oh, science tells us everything. And all this is like, all religion is, is proto-science before we knew stuff and they're stupid. And every answer, there's a data for it and blah, blah, blah. And most people 
live in the middle of all that. It's just the cultural options tend to be uh, those extremes. Right. And I think most people live in the middle. That's why you get people say, uh, like at my church uh, that I worked at the last seven years, when I took a poll in a congregation of 400 people, like how you would fill out your little form, over 20% said none. Like the rise of the nuns, right? Like what religion are you? They're all at church and give. They, like yeah. they're members yeah, and right. they, they don't check Christian. They're like, oh, uh, none. Uh, so like, you have the rise of the none. That says something. Yeah. Uh, it also, you, you like spiritual but not religious and things like that. So cosmic Christ is a way of of harnessing the insistence that there's more than just objective material reality, that there's a depth dimension to existence, and that access to it is not something to trivialize, to make fun of, and the, there'll never be a microscope that locates it. And so we're going to benefit from going deeply into different religious traditions, and obviously in the West, the Christian one. Yeah. And so you're, you're like, no, these salvation histories may not be the perfect correspondence to all of everything. So there's something to gain from science and from the religious tradition. So what do we do? The cosmic Christ, um, it, I think, is a way of connecting that. Uh, and, and so you're hooking this very orthodox telling of salvation history that now makes even more sense if you kind of layer it with scientific history, a uh, uh, kind of universal history that science is describing. Um, and it's not surprising to me that that's the case. I just like, yeah, like when, when people like really get into something Richard Rohr is saying or whatever, I'm like, oh, I mean, there's a reason he knows it. And that's because like he's, he's Catholic, he's a Catholic. <laughs> and um, like like this junk's old school, uh, you know. Well, if you're listening to this and you're wondering to yourself, what is the cosmic Christ? Just just really briefly on, on this topic. One of the things that the cosmic Christ affirms is uh, usually it has a, a relationship with the the Eastern uh, doctrine of theosis. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about awakening to our our divinity, the divinity that is in us, that that is a way of saying that just as Jesus of Nazareth was able to awaken to his divinity and show us the Christ in its fullness, so too are we invited to live the Christ self. Uh, in us today. Now, it's just that Tim being the Christ and Tripp being the Christ today is not the same as a first century Jewish itinerant rabbi walking yeah. around fulfilling the Jewish prophetic tradition and so on and so forth. So for us today to live the Christ anew is to be uh, attuned to our own vocation and to the divine lure in our lives calling us to certain tasks and certain embodiments. Uh, that said, I, I think that one of the most interesting things that I've heard you talk about, and I'd love for you to maybe highlight this now, is where that understanding came in in the salvation, salvation history of the early New Testament text. So as we see Mark's gospel being one in which there's this strong emphasis on the Son of Man, not necessarily on the divinity of Christ. And as we see that move throughout the synoptics and into John, uh, having a higher and higher Christology as it goes, where, where did this idea of the cosmic... Christ uh, that we now can talk about in terms of, of maybe more scientific theories and things. Where did that enter in in the in the early stages as it was transitioning and these these confessions about Jesus were developing? Well, so I, I would I would kind of put it like this. So the the early church is birthed out of a community of people whose experience of God 
was mediated by Jesus even after his death. Um, like because of the resurrection or whatever way you want to explain it, the gospels obviously have different accounts of it. Paul talks about it differently, but the resurrection is an affirmation that the mediation of God to the people remains through Christ. In the gospel of John, you get like, he says, I'm going to send my spirit. Um, and other, anyway, in Luke acts, you get the Pentecost moment or whatnot, but that the early church's self understanding was not Jesus was the teacher of who God is, but Jesus was the one who enacted God to them and for them and enacted humanity to God, which is another part of it in like on the cross side. So if you're a monotheist and, you know, post-resurrection, you aren't just saying, hey, see, God raised Jesus from the dead to let us know he was correct. Um, but no... Uh, Jesus is still the central mediating aspect for your relationship to God, then you're kind of stuck with a math problem. And that leads to uh, like reflection on the, ex- the continued experience of the risen Christ in the community. Uh, and they start engaging in, you know, like reading the Hebrew scriptures again and you get, Oh, well, this happened, so this is fulfilled. Or, oh, well, like Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is paralleling Moses. And you're rereading your text, and you're trying to figure out how this makes sense and how you tell it. And they aren't doing it to say that everything in the past obviously meant this. They're doing it because they're doing poetics because they don't have to deny the reality of the risen Christ. Like, that they were part of the body of Christ was not something they were doubting. Right. They were going, well, since we know the answer— how do we engage our text and stuff and figure this out? Um, now, when that community extends past Judaism, then you start having people engaging other texts to explain how this encounter with God. Uh, in engaged. the Jesus event. Yeah. yeah. And so in the Gospel of John, which is the oldest gospel in the New Testament, you have this Logos Christology at the beginning. Like, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God with God, all that kind of stuff. All that came into being came through God, all the light and all the goodness and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, and then the word became flesh by oldest. Do you mean that John was the, you said it was the oldest gospel in the new Testament. Like it took the, after Jesus, it took the longest to write. So it's the newest. So it's the, yeah, right. So I was confused because the oldest I usually hear, I think Mark, uh, Mark came first, first, which is the oldest to us. Yeah. Yeah. From John Jesus. is the newest. It, 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 if you put their year numbers next to each other, Mark is seen around 70, like around 80, 85, or the, is like uh, Matthew and Luke. John gets dated 90 or later, depending yep. on yep. who does it. Yep. Um, Perfect. And so they are asking and doing the same type of questions, right, that Paul and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing. But John's doing it, and the, po- the, the language used— uh, from different traditions to become poetic, to communicate this living reality expands. And so you get the Logos image, which comes in one part from the wisdom tradition of Hebrew scriptures and another part from Stoicism um, and like and some from the kind of Neoplatonic Jewish philosophers. Like there's yep. a debate on where all it comes from, but it's clearly... It might have concressed. Trump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's clearly a a larger network of images this explanatory. But what you see in that, um, and in like Colossians hymn, um, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn from all creation, everything that came into being, came to being through him, that kind of stuff is they go, 
Well, we know this reality and what it's doing and what it's accomplishing. And now we're like discovering language to put on this beautiful thing. And we're engaging these traditions. So now Christology becomes cosmic because that's the poetics that we're, we're, you know, that we're engaging. And we're going, yeah, the, the, the source of life, existence, the logic of reality, all light and truth, it became flesh right here. Now, that is an affirmation of what they've encountered in Christ and what they continue to experience. It is not Jesus monopolizing all light, truth, goodness, and that Jesus, like little Jew Jesus, is up there in heaven before creation going, Hey, Pops, I got an idea. (laughs) This is called the Dodgers. They're a great baseball team. And hopefully in 2017, they're going to go to the World Series. Like, I mean, obviously I think Jesus should support the Dodgers this season. But, like, a lot of times when you say, like, cosmic Christ in your head, you're like, are you really thinking, like, like homeless Jesus was before everything was made? Maybe you've been in California too long. They've legalized weed. Is that where this is coming from? No. It's, It's saying that. The lived experience of God mediated by Jesus, that we are confessing that this is what it looks like in flesh. And that's the very same reality that's brought all goodness, light, and life into being. And if you want to know what the logic and generative reason and movement of the world looks like, we tell you a story. And it's this story. And it's about Jesus. And so I know I'm about to talk about a homeless Jew for a while. But I want you to know that when he speaks and when he acts, what you're seeing is not just a Jewish prophet and not just a teacher. It's the one who made God present and offers the presence of God to be a living and animating experience for you. Now, mm. you're like, that's badass. And yeah. so then you take universal history and stuff that's going now. Um, and now if we were just going to hang out at a, at science church, like at the end of it, they're like with all eyes closed and all heads bowed. Know this, that for 13.9 billion years, this cosmos has been quaking with possibility, increasing in complexity. New layers of connections have emerged to the point that we can think, breathe, sing, and make love. The cosmos has been on a journey, and we are the first we know of to know it. So what are you going to do with the conscious gift of possibility? And you're like, oh, junk. what do you do with this? We are inheriting this thing. This is how the universe, like, we should take ourselves seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, if, if you're sitting there going, yeah, for a long time, there's been a history, and there is a logic to it. And finally, we can even start to see it. And we can consciously participate and know and engage in this generative relationship building, life giving existence. Then, whoa. Now, what if you, what if that consciousness that has been getting itself done for all this time to finally have the ability to hold eye contact and tell a poem, what if it revealed itself in flesh? And what would that look like? Oh, how beautiful of a subversive story would it be if it was a executed outcast who on a cross, why it's going down, says, Father, forgive them. We've been working on this for 13.9 billion years, and they still don't know what they're doing. Mm. So you can see them connecting, and 
and they have resonance. And I don't think you have to like poetically. You don't have to work out every detail. You just kind of they like nod at each other. But as a person of faith, when you start to say the cosmic Christ and, and start to talk about it, what you're saying is. There's a richness, beauty, depth, and access to an experience that you can't have elsewhere except in this tradition. Now, I can't tell you if it if that's not true about your tradition, right? Like, I have very good Buddhist friends, and they would say something similar. Like, I know that if you took up our path and practice and all this kind of stuff, there is a way that you get down that well so deep, the junk tastes so good. Now, I can tell you about it, but, it, like, you kind of have to— you got to go down in the well. Like you can't splash yeah. at the pond, you know. Like you can't just like uh, get a crystal and get a fat Buddha, stick it in your house, and download a meditation app that you never use and be like, oh, I don't know, it didn't work. Um, hmm. So, so like I'm saying, like as a Christian, you can talk about the cosmic Christ and and yeah. say like, yeah, I've tasted. It's good. It's beautiful, and um, it, and and there is access to to that thing that we insist has reality. That's a it, you're insisting that the material kind of closed account of the universe isn't true. Mm -hmm. um, and we know it and we have access to it in this beautiful uh, story that may have, who knows what kind of, uh, where the history lines up or which version of the gospel is better or whatever. You're like, that's beside the point. They're all telling and confessing a story, namely that God was revealed in Christ, continues to be, and that we can participate in Christ and in God and know ourselves as known and loved by God, that our consciousness can be connected and formed to the very principle of existence and that we can consciously co-create co a more beautiful and justice and love-centered universe and we get to participate in God and be mm. a part of doing that. And like, this is what it sounds like when we tell that love story as Christians. Mm. And... And, you know, and we don't need you to be like, well, I, I don't see that in my microscope. You're like, yeah, you're like, that's not the point. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. I think that that the reason it's shown back up is that a lot of those people in the middle who don't have tribes or don't, they're like, I go to church and give. I just check none. Or I'm a minister, but I would kind of say I'm not really a theist. You know, like people like that exist because they feel like these stupid options on the end are quaking. Right. And Cosmic Christ is like one of those that goes, oh, I found the sweetest way that's super old, like older than all the Western theologies that we have. Like penal substitutionary atonement is is uh, new compared to Cosmic Christ. Yeah. Right? Like, so you're like, I'm going to go so old and conservative that Protestants haven't even heard about it in so long. Yeah. And I'm going to insist that it's so awesome and zesty that I will, like, lose zero sleep when I read Richard Dawkins because what he's missing is the very animating thing that, like, like you see, like, it, it has an element of resistance. Like, I, But I'm not going to, like, walk in and be like, ah, excuse me, Richard, and Isaiah the 53rd chapter you read this verse and then on the cross this happens it fulfills it jesus is jesus is lord check that box son and he's like oh my god like what are you doing this text is history and you're like mm -mm -mm. it's uh data for a math equation and they just fight like yeah. an atheist and theist are just fighting away and mm -hmm. you're like oh so boring so boring and what the amazing part is like that was not even jesus's witnessing style right he was the worst debater ever because he didn't answer questions. Yeah. He just told stories that no one has yet to figure out which interpretation is correct and then insisted if you wanted to know the meaning, you just had to go serve people with him. Right. What a horrible pedagogy. 
Like, he could not get tenured. Horrible or... It was a joke. I, I know. Yeah, I was okay. going to okay. joke back at you. Uh, but just to piggyback off of what you have been articulating here, I have to tell you about this experience that I had last night, actually. We are sitting here recording this podcast, actually, uh, the first day of Lent, technically, or the, the day after Ash Wednesday. And mm-hmm. so as a local minister, I teamed up uh, with Team DOC and Team UCC, mm-hmm. as well as a couple of other small uh, rogue Catholic communities because they had somebody who or- ordained a woman priest. Uh, and they that got would qualify excommunicated. Rogue. Yeah, yeah. But they're still just amazing, wonderful little community. So we did a, a shared Ash Wednesday uh, service last night. And mm-hmm. it was my job, along with another fellow, um, uh, quite a few years my senior, to uh, administer the ashes to people who came forward. Now, obviously, this is a day in our tradition where we remember our mortality, our finitude. And one of the things we say is, uh, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return when we do the ashes. And yeah. so I overheard my partner saying last night, from cosmic dust you have come. And to that dust you shall return. And I thought that was such a beautiful um, way to frame our our finitude as well in terms of um, remembering what kind of stuff we are, what kind of dust we are. And that it connected for me some of those more cosmic, redemptive ideas that we see within the Christ confession to not only my very own embodiedness and finitude, but also... Uh, to to some semblance of return to that to that reality, and so I just thought that that was a that was a beautiful uh, depiction of of what you've been describing. And one of the other things I think uh, that I've I've heard come out in your uh, speaking and writing is that that the Christological event was a singular event with a universal horizon. Could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so, like when. In the prologue of John, when you, when you get, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, um, you, like, like, that's not a statement that means, and the word uh, is always looking for a human to become flesh upon. Um, so, like, that, the the particularity of Jesus and for Christians isn't like the incarnation or the Logos Christology is not the goal of it's not to turn every person into an approximated Jesus. Uh, Now, I mean, I think there's a sense, there's one sense, right? That God is very incarnational and that God desires to give God self or God, lure us into enacting or giving existence to God's insistence um, each moment. And there can be faithful response in which like God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But when, when Christians talk about Jesus as the word of God or the incarnation or whatever, it's in a, it's not that he is like just a model. He's also the means and that in Christ. uh, So Paul uses like we participate in Christ's faithfulness. We are baptized into Christ. Um, the, uh, Jesus at the end of John, where the Logos isn't, he doesn't go, hey, so uh, when I go away, don't worry, because you too could be an incarnation. He goes, don't worry, I'm going to send my spirit. Why? Because you were going to have more power and be going to more truth. But whose spirit's coming? 
It's not generic spirit. It's Jesus's spirit. Uh, so in the early church, and there's uh, a whole lot to go into, but like in three, there are three different trajectories of how the spirit and life of God change in the New Testament or understand a change in God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I would say that the word of God in Christ and flesh then opens up a new emergent possibility spiritually and that we come to participate in this, uh, in this story, in this way of being, that when we engage our faith in Christ, it is something very different than he just inspires us to do our own thing. Um, the, the church yeah. is saying like, no, like the, the way the possibilities for us have changed because, because of what God opened up through Jesus's own full faithfulness to God leads to this whole, uh, this, this whole network of possibilities that the, the church, and, and I say that just because that's literally all the church had doing. Like they wasn't like they like wrote a bunch of books down fast. Like we have to get the narrative out because that explains everything. No, they they it centered on the practices and the practices are participatory ones. Uh, communion, baptism, and then when you read the Gospels and read the and find out there are only three places Jesus says he's going to be in the in the Gospels. He promises to be in the other, right? Like the least of these, that when you tend to them, you're encountering Christ. The other is. In relationships, like when two or three are gathered, um, like and you're coming together for reconciliation, then I think then Christ promises to be at that place, and then at table, like when you come and this is my body, this is my blood, blah 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 blah, the Christ promises to be there, and uh, and I would just say like let us think that that identity we're baptized into Christ and those places, uh, we're not just meeting God generic, we're meeting like God in Christ and through Christ. And that, that means that the, a Logos Christology or a cosmic Christ is not a sneaky way of just sticking Jesus on our new age spirituality with science buckets and wanting to pray more. It's uh, the cosmic Christ is the recognition that, that God became present in Christ and opens up a new way of being for us with God mm. and God did that in Christ for us. It's not a, well, you know, that was always just hanging around and Jesus happened to show it to us. Um, and, and that's actually, a, I think, an important contrast. Like the a, a Buddhist teacher succeeds by not being necessary. Right. Because the wisdom is transferred. Like your geometry teacher wins when you know the theories. It's not like they're accidental to the gaining of wisdom. The cosmic Christology in the early church would have rejected that. Salvation is not by ascent. Right. We don't get to God. It is by participation. So the theosis, the div- the divinization, is is a gift. And like when you come to know God through Christ, He still remains necessary. Yes, He is a model and inspiration and all that, but He's also Savior. And I think the resistance to that by a lot of Christians is they still hear the word savior in a, in a context of condemnation. And like Jesus literally rejects that as a, as like a mode of ministerial operation. Like John the Baptist sat outside the city 
cursed everybody down like y'all gotta get ready times are coming axe at the root you better get ready like you know come on out get right with god junk's about to hit the fan and jesus does the opposite like he goes gets baptized and then he goes into places to the people that are quote sinners uh, which in the new testament's a sociological category um they go to sinners and they're like guess what times now why the kingdom of god's here like the you should join let's do this yeah um, the, and then the religious people, they're annoying. They're like, uh, excuse me, sir. Um, uh, you just said you forgave his sin. Well, which one? Oh my God. Hang out with theologians. Hey, take up your mat and walk. Does that work better? Nope. It's a Sabbath. Jesus Christ is my name. But you like, you know, like yeah. the, like to me, like, like when calling Jesus savior isn't in a condemning way. It, that is that is the response by people who were given their sight back or were who are or like friends who like take their friend tear the hole in the house set him down he gets up and walks they call him savior mm-hmm. like so it's a it it's just that con, the con, the condemnation thing makes people allergic to that word right or lord or, or yeah. whatever and i'm just saying like the problem isn't that god does something unique and special, in particular in Christ, the problem is how the crappy the definitions are to those words. And, yeah. and, and that's actually the New Testament question. Like when people, that's, a, I mean, why the, the my book is like Lord, Liar, Lunatic, or Awesome, is because like everyone that wrote anything we have about Jesus, this old past two sentences, is all thought Jesus was the Christ. Like that a homeless dead Jew is the image of the invisible God is not a like semi-rational statement to begin a, 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 a like a level-headed assessment with. Right. Right. The gospels themselves are very ideological. They're written by people that have already made a commitment. That's not to say they're like, they just, that's just what they are. You oh, don't, yeah. don't ask me about my kid and then think it's rational. Uh, right. I probably know more about my children than you do, but it's not right. Ra- like I'm not like the even handed assessment here. Yeah. Um, so to me, like when you, you go to somebody and you're like, is Jesus liar, lunatic or Lord? It just assumes a very, uh, that the goal is to get someone to answer the question correctly. And it's also like the worst thing to do to your friend. <laughs> you're right. like, well, I know you call him Lord, but so I don't want to call him a liar. I don't get a uncomfortable. Um, or a lunatic, or or, or, or he's crazy. Because underneath it's a, just a completely false premise, namely that Jesus ever said he was God. Um, it was yeah. real depressing to find out that wasn't in the New Testament. But uh, um, yeah, but the the uh, so but the New Testament is a discussion about what it means to be the Christ. Right. So after the baptism, Jesus gets temptations. Right. Um, Jesus. Goes, who do they say I am? They give nice, real examples. Like, oh, you could see Jesus as Elijah or a prophet, blah, blah, blah. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. He does not say, well, I'm glad you read your Hebrew Bible because that verdict was demanded. Um, No, he goes, well, my father told you. Like, Mm -hmm. the confession you were the Christ, son of the living God was not a result of having hung out with Jesus and studied your Bible. It was because it was revealed to Peter by the father. Like, the father told you. And then he's like, oh, I'm awesome. Well, then a few chapters later, he's like, Jesus is like, all right, fellas, it's time to go to Jerusalem. And Peter goes, dude, that's a horrible idea. They're going to kill you. And he's like, I know. Get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Yeah. And it's not that Peter, like, all of a sudden was like, I changed my mind. 
At first, I was thinking, Lord, but uh, my bad. I hope you believe in perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. I'm going to count on it because I'm switching to <laughs> lunatic. Going into <laughs> Jerusalem during Passover, he's going to get killed. No, the, yeah. The, it was not... Like, you don't read the Bible and go, well, I wonder what the, the correct answer is to this question. Right. You read it because so often we do exactly what Peter and all the disciples did. We're like, yes, Lord. Now we insert our agenda. And yeah. what do we do? Oh, um, I'm pretty sure affirming the lordship of Jesus does not require confrontation of oppressive religion and uh, and, and empire. Like, I, we aren't going to do the Jerusalem thing. Um, yeah. I, like, so to me, um, as when we're reading the New Testament and thinking about the language, if we if we watch closely, I think it resists hmm. putting defining Jesus in that condemnatory type of way, or that calling Jesus Lord equals a true false test, not a lifetime of discovery, and which even hanging out with Jesus, you discover your resistance right to the way of God. And your own betrayal. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I, I not only find um, the way in which you've described it to be in line with the historical tradition, but also really compelling. And I think what we've lost uh, in a lot of contemporary Christianity is the inspirational uh, element or the creative element. And, you know, it would be probably a sin of omission for us not to talk about Whitehead when we're sitting here together and are both... A uh, sin of omission. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, and I, I think that one of the ways that he has talked about the Christ and has been picked on, picked up on by John Cobb and Catherine Keller is that idea of Christ as the transformative creative force of the mm-hmm. cosmos. And I'm actually really looking forward to Catherine's new book, Intercarnations. Oh, yeah which is going to take it to another another level. But uh, as we finish up here, is there are there any last thoughts that you have? I mean, like as I'm talking about Whitehead, talking about um, my one of my favorite articulations, talking about intercarnations and, and the potential that is there, well, what, what would we be remiss if we didn't bring up uh, in closing here? What's one of your, I mean, your favorite things about the Christological task? Well, um, I, so the two things I thought of are, well, one kind of about the John Cobbs thing, in his long book, Christ in a Pluralistic Age, after kind of developing um, a way of understanding the Christian tradition and uh, Logos Christology using process philosophy and all that kind of stuff, yep. um, he, he points out that uh, when he goes like, how is Jesus fully human, fully divine, and how is he different in a universal way, he says that, Jesus's eye, his subjectivity, uh, was co-constituted by the primordial nature of God, which is the unchanging character of God. So that in every moment, Jesus was not like, will I be faithful? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm going to try to do this. And I, I did a great job. I win. But that Jesus's identity um, as the son was so uh, uh, cohered so tightly uh, with God's desire that, that he was the word of God enfleshed. Right. And then so like he points out uh, that's kind of I mean, there's a long story that I was about to slip into explaining Whitehead. But um, so I say like he does affirm that. And then he says, so in Christ, we see what it's like uh, when the word is active. What what is so a lot of times, right? Oh, we got a word from God. We know what we know what God wants. 
No, we, it's really hard to figure that out. And so like part of being a Christian is looking at the life of Jesus and what is, and, and saying, what does God want? What's God desire? What's God will look like? And, and, and what he does is saying like, Jesus's life then is revelatory to, of kind of the sacred generative activity of God in all things. And he calls it creative transformation hmm. and then proceeds to give examples of how through the West, different themes and elements continue to happen in different places and using art and the figure of Christ disappears and the transformation uh, kind of moves. It does this like art history telling and stuff. And what I have found, I remember the first time I read it, I'm like, I like the first half of the book the best. I don't want to talk about art. Um, and then going back through it and reading again and going, um, how, how beautiful of a way I, to me as a per, uh, as a Christian to think my goal like what are we gaining by continuing to read the text, engaging it, cultivating practices of cultivating consciousness of the spirit and all this kind of stuff, is to realize that our faithful Christian living is artful. Like so many of us see like what do you do for your job or like who right. like we have a very mechanistic. Uh, very, I don't know, like a utilitarian way of describing ourselves in the world. But when you see like the principle of creative transformation that was in fleshed in Christ is something that's always moving and going, uh, then um, that kind of artistic account, aesthetic account is beautiful. You know why? Because you, you, as an artist, you don't go, well, that failed. That's just not what, that's like not an assessment, that, or that's not good enough. Art is an ongoing process. It is a craft that the love and joy and, and persistence and grit and working at it is the joy. It's not, it's not something you arrive it's at. It's the craft. Yeah. yeah. And so to me that, the, the, and that becomes freeing and it becomes like inspiring and discipleship that, Discipleship as art versus sin management and guilt reduction techniques is wonderful. Hmm. Um, and that's why the other thing that popped in my head was I think a lot of people uh, in the Enlightenment feel like they have to have answers to lots of questions that their fundamentalist friends ask them about God and Jesus before they do anything. And that's backwards. Jesus didn't answer questions and called people into a community of practices and that that is the beginning of theological thinking. Like, don't tell me your theory of the afterlife until you pray for your enemies every day. Then talk about hell. Go for it. Try. And, mm. oh, don't tell me that, oh, here's you immigrants, this and this and that. Or, oh, the poor, they're lazy, blah, 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 blah. Like, nope. I'm sorry. Like, you don't get to have opinions on those things out of context. Like, Jesus, like, that's not how we handle this. Mm. He'll dodge probably his, whatever the question is and then be like, well, I don't know, Zach. Why don't you try to have everyone over to your house? Because I was thinking we should go there. Your wine cellar is very nice. You've been extorting people. And then Zacchaeus gets down and like he's invited into a practice, invited yeah. into community. And I think we need to realize that all the anxiety and the stress of feeling like we actually have to have real answers to everything is not like that's not what it means to have faith. Um, and honestly, like, all of us who are professional scholars, 
95% of the crap we say is based on us knowing other smart people that knew it and told us to trust this and then told us to trust this. Yes. Um, I just doing an interview with a atheist friend of mine and I said, well, yeah, but you know, when this happened scientifically, then that kind of shift that, that it's like, really? Huh? Well, I didn't know that. And then like, you know, we stop and mm-hmm. look it up. He's like, well then I guess I'll have to change my mind on that. And, and I thought, that's nice. Why can't Christians do that? Like, why yeah. is it that, uh, that it, he didn't go, Oh crap. A Christian told me science I didn't know. Now I lost. That's not what he did at all. He's like, well, I guess I'll have to change my mind on that. I'll have to look at the data. And in, in what was he doing? Being a scientist. You know right. why? Because you win by being faithful to the activity of being a scientist, not by telling us that like uh, Pythagoras is correct still. And so Christians, I think, need to learn that fidelity includes that adventure. Mm-hmm. It includes that continued discovery and enactment of what we're doing. And I think Jesus gives us a model because he just doesn't do theology well. Uh, he's like, you'll keep doing theology because that's what humans do. We ask big questions. But if you're going to do it, do it by what? Meeting me in the other and the excluded. Do it by insisting you're going to forgive even if you are suffering unjustly. Do it knowing you don't know what you do. Like, do it when you gather with people, have a long meal, and then remember me. Like, do it when you've had relationships where you can be honest and forgive without counting. Like, Hmm. when we can develop community and practices, those experiences of the divine can affirm us uh, in ways that confidence and certainty can't. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Trip has given us a beautiful uh, and compelling Christological vision that includes not only the poetic and artful embrace of discipleship being lived out uh, as as participating in creativity itself, but also knowing that that community of participation is one in which we participate in uh, the salvific movement in community and in the other and in relationship. So. Uh, wow. What, what, what a great and compelling vision that is. Uh, Tripp, thanks for being with us. This was a zesty conversation, no doubt. There you go. Zesty. That is a serious affirmation. And we look forward to having you back sometime. You won't have to try hard. Well, I'm, I'd imagine so. You know, uh, for some reason when, when it's a podcast episode and I don't have to listen that much and I get to talk more, it's it's a lot more fun. Peace out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. You can find out more about Tripp's work by heading over to homebrewedchristianity.com. If you like what you heard here, you can also log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsor's ARC at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.